Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Looking at the conflict in particular, how do we switch from positions to interests, right? So how do we take away from, hey, this is what I want, this is what you want, to this is the reason that I have a particular want, and this is the reason that you have a particular want. And if we have clarity together collectively on what those interests are, then we can collaboratively work towards a solution. Hello and welcome to the Engineering Leadership Podcast brought to you by ELC, the Engineering Leadership Community. I'm Jerry Lee, founder of ELC. And I'm Patrick Gallagher, and we're your hosts. Our show shares the most critical perspectives, habits, and examples of great software engineering leaders to help evolve leadership in the tech industry. In this episode, Jordan Adler, head of developer engineering at OneSignal, joins us to talk about conflict optimization. Our conversation is going to cover topics like the common sources of conflict in engineering teams that you should look out for, Jordan also shares practical tools and conversation frameworks to help you optimize conflict when you inevitably encounter it. How to shift people from entrenched positions to understand their actual interests and how to uncover underlying emotional needs. Let me introduce you to Jordan. Jordan's the head of developer engineering at OneSignal. Before that, Jordan evolved engineering productivity at Cruise, led API platform engineering at Pinterest, and was a strategic partner engineer and developer advocate at Google, where he managed technical partnerships between major organizations and Google. Another thing that makes this conversation so special, Jordan's also joining us to host a workshop that's going to go deeper into conflict optimization at our upcoming spring virtual summit on April 20th through the 22nd. So this is really a sneak preview into what you can expect from that workshop. Jordan and I have known each other for some time now. He's extremely thoughtful, and I learn something new from him every time that we talk. And if you're anything like me and extremely averse to conflict, you're really going to like this conversation. Enjoy our conversation with Jordan Adler. I think we're going to have some really fun, fun sub-conversations here, Jordan. But as we dive deeper, just wanted to extend an official welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's one of my favorite phrases of all time. To kick off with setting a little bit of context, we, we have the ELC Virtual Summit coming up. Uh, at the time of this recording, it'll be in a few weeks. You're joining us to host a workshop on conflict and engineering leadership. And this conversation today is going to be a little bit of a window into that experience and what will happen during that summit. We were trying to calibrate, how do we talk about this topic? You shared that this was about conflict optimization, not resolution. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about why that distinction, because I, I love the distinction between those two phrases and what that means in this conversation today. So can you bring us into to why that distinction for conflict? That's, that's an amazing question. I think when it comes to conflict, if you have a workshop and you're say, saying to people, hey, come to my workshop, I'm going to teach you how to resolve conflict, you're really letting people know that you're focusing on what happens 
after conflict has taken place. Whereas when you think about conflict optimization and the focus on the workshop itself is definitely interested in what are all the things that happen before conflict even takes place? How do we avoid the kind of interpersonal conflict that would requires resolution in mediation of some kind? Although I do cover some of the, the techniques and processes for mediating conflict after it has occurred. Ultimately, I think what's important and, and as engineering leaders, our responsibility is to create an environment that optimizes conflict. And the correct amount of conflict is not zero. If there's no give and take, if there's no mutual uh, alignment of interests, even in cases where they are not intrinsically aligned, you have to work and collaborate together to make them aligned. Healthy conflict is a part of the everyday work that we do. I love that idea of the optimal amount of conflict is not zero. I think it's a really great way to, to phrase that. And so I think what's really special about this, Jordan, is you bring a lot of your own personal experience as an engineering leader to this and like the deep curiosity around this. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how conflict became important to you and how it's really shown up for you as, a, as an engineering leader. Because I think, as we've talked about offhandedly, in general, like there's a certain culture or challenge about being a technical leader that oftentimes we maybe are a little bit more conflict averse. Can you talk a little bit more about your observation with conflict and engineering leadership, what people typically default to, and then why this became important to you? First of all, there's a selection bias in engineering leadership, as there is in any kind of leadership. And I think the selection bias here in our industry is towards folks who are agreeable, reconciliatory, who care about each other and are thoughtfully inclusive. The problem is that when you select for people like that, sometimes they can be conflict avoidant and conflict avoidant isn't optimal, right? If you're not able to advocate for the interests of your team, if you're not able to find where your mission statement, your team's mission statement conflicts with another team's mission statement and then collaboratively reconcile that, then you're going to get run over roughshod. And I think I experienced a lot of this in my time as an individual contributor at Google uh, and at other workplaces where we didn't have the kind of clarity of responsibility or kind of delineation of team mission statements that were mutually exclusive and comprehensively exhaustive in a way that enabled us to function organically independently of each other. And we had a lot of times where, okay, these two teams are basically trying to do the same thing. We have to compete with each other while also collaborating with each other. And that's a very challenging line to walk. Let's dive in more to this topic. So maybe let's start off with when you're talking about conflict, what is conflict? What do you mean by that? And then can you share a little bit more about what causes it to appear in the workplace or specifically within an engineering organization? You're mentioning a couple like conflicting mission statements. Let's dive deep into some of those things. Yeah. So I think when it comes to like, what is conflict, there are a lot of different perspectives on this. And mine comes from the process philosophy world. And in particular, in, within the, this realm of conflict, there's a school of thought called conflict transformation. And within conflict transformation, there's a couple notable folks who have defined kind of what conflict is. I'll go through a couple of these because I think there's some interesting ideas here. The first is David Anderson Hooker who defines conflict as two ideas sharing space, hmm. two intentions sharing the same space. And Diana Francis, who defines it as the friction caused by difference, proximity, and movement. And I, I think that essentially to me what that means is conflict is just a part of the process of collaboration, of competing interests in a sort of abstract sense, working through us as individuals, as kind of gears within a broader social machinery. 
And conflict is necessary. There's some amount of friction necessary because we have diversity of value, diversity of interest, diversity of mission. And within the workplace, that often looks like certainly interpersonal value conflict, but it can also look like interorganizational value conflict. You know, as an example, the Google Chrome team and the Google Search team have very different ideas or values around the web, super, super different, but different enough to create conflict between the two when it comes to choosing to collaborate together to manage the web. And so I think that conflict is necessary in the workplace, right? If you have a tax software company and you have a product team who's really, their mission is very clearly go out and make as many amazing tax products as you can, as quickly as you can. And a legal team whose objective it is to make sure that every product release minimizes you know, negative impact or liability to the company. Well, those two things are necessarily going to be at odds. And so finding the balance between them, that kind of even point where, where both interests are met that collaborative approach requires some amount of conflict. And so finding a way to do that conflict healthfully and constructively is critical to, to any kind of leadership. And I think thinking about conflict in this way helps us optimize for it as opposed to avoiding it because nobody wants to get into a screaming match. We're not those kinds of people. I think spotlighting some of the, the organizational sources is, is really helpful can you share a little bit more about some of the observations you've seen of, of where conflict oftentimes comes up in the context of engineering leadership? Yeah, I mean, I think when it comes to engineering in particular, uh, a good place to look at is any sort of decision-making point that affects one or more individuals or teams. And so common ones are, are kind of technical decisions around software design. So oftentimes when I think about conflict optimization, the first question I ask is how do you design software, right? How does this group collaborate to make software design decisions? How are those decisions documented? Who is involved in those decisions, right? So if we are a knowledge organization, right, all software organizations are knowledge organizations, and each individual in that organization is like a neuron in the brain. And if we're making decisions about how to design software without using all of our neurons, then we're not maximizing our potential. And if we're not kind of committing to, to one collaborative approach after having leveraged that information, if we are constantly struggling between these neurons, right, then we're not acting as a single unit. So software design is a huge part of that within engineering organizations. But there's other ones too. Certainly like who does what project can be a source of conflict and understanding how to create an organization chart that makes that super clear making sure teams aren't understaffed or overstaffed in ways that can cause conflict in terms of staffing decisions. So I think definitely that the top two are going to be technical decisions around software design or kind of global policies like language policies or repo strategies, and then people decisions, staffing on particular projects, how folks are, are evaluated in terms of performance, making sure people have the opportunity and expectations that they need to be able to be held accountable, but also be celebrated when they are successful. I think that it really distills like some really clear areas. Do you have an example or a story that you could share of your experience, I guess, being a part of a situation where conflict arises, either in like the, the technical or software design decision-making, global policies on language, or staffing or performance evaluation? Is there a story that comes to mind for you when one of these areas came up? Yeah, one that comes to mind, when I was at Pinterest, we were working on a shared 
mono repository. So our repository strategy at that time, and probably still is true at Pinterest, is we had per language monorepos. And so I was putting together a specification for how the Python repository should be organized. We didn't have a dedicated team that owned this. And so as one of the people who led the efforts on the biggest Python service and kind of used a lot of the code base and was really deeply involved across the board, I felt like I was in a position to create some structure here and move things forward. And we had a colleague of mine who worked on a similar sort of you know, system in the same repository. And we had kind of differing opinions as to how this repository should be structured. So he wanted to have source and test directories at the top level. Uh, I wanted to have kind of services, libs, tools at the top level, and then you can dig in to have tests in, at each kind of layer underneath that. Neither strategy is necessarily better than the other. Reasonable people could disagree. They come with trade-offs, right? If His argument was if you put source and test at the top level, it makes people think about tests more. That's probably true. My argument was if you put source and test kind of within each team scope level, then you enable people to move more quickly independent of each other and reduce overcoupling of code, which is probably also true. But either strategy could come with additional tactics that would mitigate those trade-offs. And so at the end of the day, it's really six of one, half dozen of the other, right? And I think we, we ended up, the part of the challenge is there was no clear owner here. There was no tech lead who was the clear and legible owner that everyone agreed upon. This person would be the tiebreaker when reasonable people could disagree. And so we kind of, I think, ended up more or less taking it to a vote and, and collectively deciding as a group. And we moved forward with one of the two proposals. I won't share which. And it's not really important which, frankly. And the experience was amazing for me because it was very easy to have this kind of conflict with my counterpart. I think he he took it very well. I took it very well. We collaborate as a group very well. And I think a part of that is the maturity of the folks involved and also the shared interests of the people that were working together. And the challenge is that if you have an engineering organization that doesn't have those things, right, and doesn't have a clear owner who can kind of be responsible for making decisions when reasonable people could disagree within a particular domain, that is a, a recipe for conflict. I am so excited to get to the how here because conflict, my stress level just blows right up to red. And thinking about a time where I have a, a difference in opinion or maybe could reasonably disagree with another approach definitely stresses me out. Jerry has been a part of most of those conversations. But the thing is, and what I really admire about Jerry is he, he really does a great job of helping diffuse that with me and helping us kind of understand we're both coming from the same place. And so, Jerry, I don't know if you took a masterclass on this like way long ago. But anyway, I know we're going to dive into some examples on how Jerry, you're, you got something to say. What's up? No, I mean, I just, I can't test that. Conflict really a way, a good pass to build trust and absorb different opinions. So in, in the end, you make better decisions, the organization performs better if you can navigate through those conflicts to a, a positive outcome. Jerry, when Jordan was sharing a couple of the different sort of hotspots for conflict in an engineering leadership organization or in the engineering organization, were there any things that came to your mind where you're like, oh, shoot, like that one reminds me of this conflict? A lot. So and those kind of debates happens very often in engineering teams, especially among people that are more experienced in one area or the other. Like they are more opinionated and harder to see the other side of the story. So as an engineering leader, we often in a position that we have to almost 
really raise the uh, awareness and the empathy so that you can see, as Jordan pointed out, neither is the absolute right answer, but the, the challenge is really to help one party to see the other's perspective because at the end of the day, we all share the same goal. We want the company to, to be successful. We want to, whatever architecture decision we made, we want to ensure the uh, software development process will be flexible, rapid, and agile. The challenge of being an leaders is just that how do you navigate those conflicts because uh, a lot of people are just not prepared to, to handle that. Is it fair to see conflict as a form of constraints that can be positively applied to a lot of problem-solving process. Yeah, absolutely. I think there are cases where we have to make software design decisions and product design decisions as a group. And if we don't reach out and get those constraints from all the parties involved, we're going to arrive at a suboptimal conclusion, a suboptimal design when it comes to that particular technical or product design detail. You know, there are cases where we've built things here at one signal where we have to consider the impact of a decision as it appears on the infrastructure engineering team as well as on the SDK engineering team. A good example is we want to track adoption events. And so we've built a telemetry system to collect metrics to help us understand when certain features are adopted. We pipe those into an API. That API server is owned by the product engineering team, which then passes things through a system owned by the data engineering team and into a component owned by our infrastructure engineering team that actually stores the data. And if we don't consider that all the requirements of all those teams that go across that in terms of both maintenance and reliability, as well as just costs, right? When it comes to adoption events and storing them, you have to think about cardinality. And so if we don't reach out and say, okay, I'm gonna, I would like to start putting in data, but the data design that we have is going to explode your cardinality, which is going to cause a large increase in your storage requirements. That might require a kind of decision or a kind of constraint on our design process to say, hey, we need to have a little less cardinality here because at the end of the day, what we actually care about, our position is we want less cardinality. Our interest is we need the storage requirements to be linear in terms of our scale as we add new customers and not super linear. And so as much as we can identify what those underlying interests are and expose those as constraints as opposed to kind of surficial, hey, no extra cardinality, kinds of constraints. That is the key to leveraging constraints and collaborating across teams to ensure that all interests are met. I think it's about time we jump into how. Okay. And thinking about how we can address this maybe in a, a way that allows people listening in to, to sort of have a problem to deal with, to, to think about, and then as you walk in through a couple principles, tactics, or, or a proposed framework to how to address this, let's talk about how do you resolve a conflict that's taking place? And I was wondering maybe if you could give like a, a relatable example or like a quick maybe case study for people to think about. And then we can talk about like the practice or the framework or the process to help people resolve that conflict. Absolutely. If you have a conflict that's already taken place, and especially if you're in a management position, chances are you're being asked to mediate as a third party and mediation did not occur between the two individuals or teams without your input. The first thing you have to do is just get them in the same room together, create shared values, create shared meaning, and just kind of reestablish, hey, we're all on the same team here. We're all working towards the same goal. We have different concerns within that goal and different areas where we focus on. And we may even have different opinions about how to meet those goals, but we need to work together to make that happen. And so setting that kind of ground 
truth of, hey, we're all in this together. We all have the same kind of objectives in mind is important. The next thing you think about is how do we switch from, looking at the conflict in particular, how do we switch from positions to interests, right? So how do we take away from, hey, this is what I want, this is what you want, to this is the reason that I have a particular want, and this is the reason that you have a particular want. And if we have clarity together collectively on what those interests are, then we can collaboratively work towards a solution. And ultimately, you want to dig into underlying needs, right? So, so nonviolent communication uh, is a tool that you can use, and we'll, we'll chat about more. Uh, I'll chat more about that in a second. But nonviolent communication gives us a way to dig into people's underlying emotional needs. And so that, that is a set of language tools that you can use, a sort of therapy jargon, if you will, to be able to dig in and understand those emotional needs. And so once you have kind of a clear set of constraints, if you will, of interests and, and needs, you can collaborate together towards a plan of action and then move towards relationship repair, right? Because ultimately we want people to want to work together collaboratively and things can get really hot and heated from time to time. And we want to encourage folks to move past that. I think the the first thing you mentioned about shared values and shared meaning, this is something that I really admire in Jerry is that like anytime we go into a we need to make a design decision or we need to determine what our path forward is for a certain strategy. Jerry, you're always really good at helping us like set that shared intention and, and shared goal. But it's almost like we, we always vi- revisit that and that's something I think is, is really powerful. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. Jordan, I'm really curious about switching from positions to interests because I feel like this may be where a lot of folks get stuck is you come in, you set the context, you set the shared objectives of we want to do this. And here's why this is important to all of us, but then helping people move from this is what I believe, and I'm attached to that. How do you help people make that switch from their position to interest? You know, essentially, you have to dig in, you have to ask them, why is it that you feel this way? Or help me understand, let's make this a little concrete. Let's assume that we're collaborating together. We've decided as an organization, hey, we have too many programming languages in our code base. We need to cut it down. So we're going to pick one language to use for a, a functional language or something. So uh, we have Scala, we have F Sharp, we have a few different options kind of already in our code base. And we might have different people who are advocating for different languages. And so we might say, hey, our six languages, one of them has to be Scala. And you might say, hey, one of them has to be F Sharp. And there might be a third party that says, we can really only have one functional language because we have six languages and we can't have two functionals and not have any kind of other kinds of languages that deal with other kinds of use cases. And so essentially, we need to move from the positions of, hey, Scala, hey, F-sharp, to interest. What is it exactly that wants you to pick F-sharp? And what is it exactly that wants you to pick Scala? And you might find that Frankly, you know, one person may have invested a lot of their career in specializing in Scala. And so a natural part of their kind of existential bias, you know, their bias towards existing is to want to perpetuate that in their workplace so that they can continue to be productive in the tools that they enjoy. 
The same is probably true on the other side. And sometimes as an engineering leader, you have to be in a position where you have to say, okay, well, this environment, this working environment was a very hospitable place that was well aligned with your personal objectives in the past, but moving forward, that may not be true. And so digging in to understand what those interests are helps us have frank conversations about these kinds of things. And it really, the only way is to ask why and really dig in. To be understood, you first need to seek understanding of other people. And through that process, you get the other party not on the uh, other side of you, but should we collaborating on something together. And I, just to to call out the specific terminology that I think is really powerful to immediately adopt. Why? Help me to understand what is it exactly that makes you want to choose X, Y, or Z pathway. Those specific phrases, I think, transform a conversation. The other side of this is, I imagine, the emotional needs. I think this is where oftentimes I get hung up, is I either not recognizing my own emotional needs and just kind of like blowing up in the middle of a conversation or not recognizing the emotional needs of another person. And so can you dive in a little bit more into how do you understand underlying emotional needs or you mentioned that's connected to nonviolent communication. Can you talk about both of those and maybe what that looks like? Absolutely. Nonviolent communication was a, a toolkit developed by a gentleman by the name of Dr. Marshall Rosenberg, who was involved in integrating schools in the American South uh, following kind of the, the end of the Jim Crow era. So there were a lot of very tense situations and a lot of folks who were entrenched in position and frankly, having deep-seated emotional challenges that appear as very harsh and critical positions and interests. And so digging deeper into the underlying emotional needs and working with folks to be vulnerable with each other was key to being successful in Dr. Rosenberg's mission there. And so nonviolent communication comes from that space. And it is a very kind of practical set of tools that frankly, if you're following by the book, can come across as a sort of therapy jargon, right? So at, at its you know, highest level, you're essentially following a four-step process, which are observation, feeling, need, and request. So observation, I, I see that you're feeling a little upset. Feeling, can you share why you might be feeling a little upset? Need, what is it that you're missing that is causing you to feel upset? And request, how can I help meet that need? How can I give whatever is missing so that you no longer feel upset? And a large part of it is going to be developing a vocabulary of emotions and needs that is well beyond what we learn in kindergarten. Right? I mean, I use the word <laughs> upset just now to cover upset, frankly, is, is nowhere near nuanced enough to have a meaningful conversation around. But it's a starting point by which you can dig deeper and say, are you feeling upset perhaps because you have an unmet need to be respected by your peers or an unmet need to have interesting, challenging technical debates? And some people do have needs to have interesting, challenging technical debates. And some people have needs to not debate the same thing over and over again and just get the job done. And so digging in deeper and understanding each individual's needs based in part on their personalities and goals and just diversity of characteristics in that way can help us work together more closely. I love that framework so much. The thing I jump to or where I probably feel like the most nervous or scared about is like trying to understand somebody's unmet need or like asking them about that. 
Can you speak a little more about that, about how to identify somebody's unmet emotional need or how to like ask them about that in a way that doesn't seem either patronizing or invasive in a way, I guess, that feels like authentic and curious and that helps move that conversation forward? Yeah, I mean, I think the key is to be non-judgmental. If nonviolent communication has anything to it, it's non-judgmentalness, right? That is the violence in question, which is a very extreme interpretation of the word violence, certainly to an American audience. But it's the objective saying, hey, you're not wrong. I'm not going to use language that suggests that you are wrong. I am going to use language that, that suggests that I am curious. And it really begins with a statement of observation. So I'm not asking how you're feeling, I'm, I'm essentially saying, I hear you raise your voice, I see that your fists are clenched, and then you can move on to an empathy guess. Might you be feeling a little angry? Might you be feeling a little frustrated? And you pause and, and let folks respond. And, and usually when you ask people about their emotions, they're going to be honest with you. And I think that for a lot of people, depending on the environment that we grew up in and the culture of our families, that may not be something that we're used to. But I think if you extend empathy to someone else, and sometimes it takes being a little vulnerable first to make it happen, right? I sense you're feeling frustrated. I get frustrated sometimes too. Or this environment, this situation is really ticking me off. And I can imagine why that might be true for you too. Can go a long way towards building that rapport and encouraging people to be vulnerable with their emotions. There's a book, um, one of my favorite leadership book um, all time is Fred Kaufman's Conscious Business. In that book, he defines a few type of emotions and what leads to those emotions underneath. And also talk about how do you handle emotions when you're in conversation at work. So one thing I remember learned and applied right away and it's effective is that when you have a conversation with someone, if emotion rises up, the first thing you need to do is to just acknowledge that in the same way that you, they're not judgmental. Like you shouldn't feel sad or shouldn't feel angry because you can start to explain that never works because emotion is emotion. So if, if, if people have certain emotion, that's a fact. You need to acknowledge that. I think that's the start of conversation that sort of related to the framework that Jordan described, at least in the first step. That's an amazing point. And a lot of people can feel shame about their emotions because of, of past historical experiences or cultural differences. And, and it's really important to encourage people to move past that shame and be vulnerable. And as leaders, it's our responsibility to be vulnerable first. I was wondering, Jordan, if we could talk about a little bit of a different context, because the example you shared about, I heard you raise your voice, I, I see you clenched your fist. Some of that, that like, the, like the physical input is a little bit more difficult now with a lot of folks being remote. And so do you have any distinctions between how to help people either uncover unmet needs in the modality that most of us are in now with mostly video or audio calls? Is there a way you can cue people in to help them be on the lookout during this conversation? I mean, I think in the Zoom world that we live in, where everyone's video chatting with each other, it's important to keep in mind that different people have different optimal levels of stimulation. And Zoom can just be overwhelming. It's just way too much for some people. And so that is a intrinsically stressful situation for them because they feel overwhelmed by information and, and stimulation in a way that a physical presence may not be or that a camera's off Zoom session might not be or a phone call might not be. Having said that, there is a 
level of communication fidelity that having your camera on and looking someone in the eye, at least as best as you can through a monitor, can provide in a way that a phone call cannot. And when I'm having extremely challenging conversations, those difficult conversations at work, I want to have them in person. I want to have them over Zoom with the camera so that we can, you can look in my eyes and see that my face is telling you that I, I want what's best for us. And I mean that genuinely. And it's a lot easier to believe that when you are able to see me and I'm able to see you. It's also a lot easier to be frustrated with someone who is abstract and doesn't really feel like a person so much as another internet user, right? A handle on the other end of a screen. And so I think it's important to strike the balance between ensuring that people have their individual needs met with regards to fidelity of communication and not being overstimulated or overwhelmed and providing enough emotional fidelity in the communication media to have the kinds of challenging conversations that you need to engage and collaborate on challenging areas. Yeah, I learned this uh, in Harway. I remember that I made a terrible mistake. There's one time I provided a piece of feedback for the work that Patrick did, and that was done over text message. So out of context, this is what I feel. And it, as you can imagine, it didn't, it didn't come across well. And I've since never do any provide any feedback through uh, a text, either Slack or a text message, at least need to have a conversation. Or I can record a video or uh, audio so that people can hear your voice, your, uh, your facial expressions, and they know, have some additional information to sort of parse out the message from that. Because otherwise, if just uh, the text, people can interpret it in different ways. They can add emo- emotions to it when they read it. So th- that is so true. Taking the right media. That's an amazing point. It was something like Jerry was providing feedback on some type of design thing, and what was said was like, this is not good, or something like that. Like, very simple, very direct. In one version of interpretation, it could be like, oh, like it's just not in the right direction, or the quality is not up to the bar that we want. But then I immediately jumped to, this is not good, as in, I'm a failure, I'm the worst. And that's how I interpreted it, but that was not Jerry's intent. But it was like one of those classic cases of intent versus impact, and we were able to talk through it obviously, but it is just a simple thing that could be a trigger point, which is really why interacting with human beings is tricky. I have folks on my team who have not always benefited from emotionally intelligent management. And, you know, when you use a lower fidelity communication medium like text or kind of a Slack message, like Jerry said, folks can let their imaginations wander and fill in those gaps with whatever they fear most, right? Exactly. And, and, and that can become a problem for sure. And look, I mean, we can do an entire episode on feedback. <laughs> we could probably do hours and hours on, on just personal feedback and delivering it and how to optimize that. But ultimately, I think what's important is that folks have their needs met. They are able to communicate and collaborate closely and, and as a team. And ultimately, delivering feedback is a form of conflict right? We, we have a mismatch of expectations and that mismatch must be reconciled in order for the organization to perform effectively. And if we don't do it thoughtfully and consistently, then six months from now, when it's performance review time, you're going to be surprised that I have a set of expectations you're not meeting and you have a set of expectations that is inaccurate or inconsistent with mine. For folks that are just learning how to resolve conflict, from your experience, is it true that 
resolving conflict or optimizing conflict can get better with practice. It becomes a sort of muscle memory, like with practice, that it's easier for it to react and more more naturally or subconsciously to to those situations. Hundred percent, and I think that is the core of and really the starting point of the conflict optimization workshop is that we are all in a journey of self-improvement. Heraclitus once said, no man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river, and he's not the same man. And, and I think that applies to everything that we do. And we have the opportunity to be a better person and to go into new situations, understanding that situations are different in every instance of a particular kind of conflict. And we need to use our judgment and our constantly evolving skills to handle them. I love that you dropped in a little bit of Greek philosophy. That is one of my just favorite things to to read in the past time. Also, I was chuckling with people fill the gaps with worst case because that's exactly what has happened in conversations between Jerry and I. So I got a good chuckle out of that because I do that. That's 100% what I do. And Jerry, you mentioned practice. We might not be able to do an XM now because there's one other question I want to ask you, Jordan, but could you give a quick preview for like what would be an example of an activity that would happen at a workshop like this? Because I think the as you just said, the practice is the essential part to be able to, to make it a part of your habit as a leader. But could you just give a, a quick preview for what types of practice would be like available in this workshop? Absolutely. In the workshop, we'll go through a couple different exercises. The first one's going to be kind of a paired up nonviolent communication exercise. So we'll practice using that, that jargon and that four-step process of observation, feeling, need, and request to introspect and share our concerns with someone else, kind of an outbound way, as well as an inbound way. Solicit input from someone else and understand what's going on with them and collaborating closely to resolving and creating a plan of action. The second exercise that we'll walk through is kind of a three-person exercise. So we'll have one person who's a member of one team, one person who's a member of another team, and the two teams have some conflicting priorities and a kind of tense situation that's very much modeled after the real world experiences that we've all had and some of the larger tech companies that we have been at. And there's a third party who is a manager of one of these two people trying to mediate the situation. Mm. And so we'll get a chance to see both the one-on-one, hey, let's practice talking about each other's emotions, as well as the here is a multi-party conflict in progress. How do we create a plan of action? And there's a little twist in there I threw in for (laughs) folks who are listening at home. There is some secret information some of the parties have that the others don't. And so it's important (laughs) to develop the skills to solicit that information and not just expect people to offer it up right away. This must have been cathartic for you to create in pulling from your own experiences with some of these things. I'm not going to say it was a form of therapy, but it was definitely a form of intentional consideration, particularly, you know, as I work here at OneSignal, to ensure that we have the kinds of environment where we can avoid the kinds of conflict that can occur in a, in a hyper-growth startup if you scale without consideration. I love it. Well, so I know we want to jump into rapid-fire questions, Jordan. The last question, I was hoping we might be able to link all of the from where we started to now. With the beginning, we talked about optimizing conflict. What you had mentioned was it, it wasn't just about what happens after conflict occurs, but it's also doing things to avoid conflict in the first place. Do you have maybe a way to summarize, like something you could insert to avoid conflict in the first place. Yeah, I'll give you kind of the top line summary. And again, this feedback can become a multi, multi-series conversation. But when it comes to avoiding conflict, the keys really are thinking about what are the decision-making processes that exist? How do we make them legible? 
What are the power structures and kind of a division of responsibility? How do we make sure that is mutually exclusive and, and comprehensively exhaustive so we're not missing anything and we don't have areas of overlap where people maybe step on each other's toes or are so afraid of stepping on each other's toes that their work doesn't get done? And making decisions in the correct way and being intentional and legible about that is, is key. So folks know what to expect all along the way. They have references that they can go back to, documents that can say, okay, here's who owns this particular decision, let me go talk to them, as opposed to the situations that many folks end up in where there's no clear owner for this. And it becomes essentially a point of continuous contention by all the people who need to manage it. And there's no clear, singularly responsible person who can be responsible for shepherding decisions around that particular area, whether that's people area or technical area. Perfect. Thank you, Jordan. So let's wrap this up with a couple rapid fire questions. The first, what are you reading or listening to right now? There's a book by Eric Fromm called The Art of Loving that is very short, a little over 100 pages, and is the most profound book you haven't read yet. Oh my gosh. That's a concise and powerful way, I think, to summarize the impact of a book there. I'm going to add that to my reading list. Thank you. What tool or methodology has had a big impact on you? So many has a big impact on me. Top of mind for me is perf season. So we're doing peer reviews at the moment. And I'm in a unique and first time experience of being asked to do a peer review for our CEO. And so I've developed this mental model for CEO performance evaluation, which is just inputs and outputs within an organization of communications, people, products, and money, right? Are we getting the right people in? Are we getting the right people out? Are we getting the right communications in? Are we getting the right communications out? Are we getting the right money in? Are we getting the right money out? Too much money out, maybe? Are we getting the right products in? Are we getting the right products out? And so that that helps me think about, okay, how is the organizational performance working? And it's a sort of mental model towards evaluating individual performance of a CEO. I love that. That kind of tracks the conversation Jerry and I had a couple days ago about the simple mandates for a business. And it was like, Jerry might be able to jump in with the summary here. I'm going to mess it up. Yeah, that's three steps recipe. You build it, you sell it, and you let people know about it. The, the simple framework just makes life so much easier. Thanks, Jordan. What's a trend you're seeing now or following that's interesting or hasn't hit the mainstream yet? That's a good one. I'm in the developer tool space. So developer tooling, developer platforms are really interesting for me. And what I'm, I'm starting to see is the beginning of the end for React. Not necessarily React-type virtual DOMs, but React itself, as well as Docker. I think containers are here to stay. I think Docker is a system or runtime build tool and so on is probably beginning to go on its way out. And another thing I'm seeing is Flutter is just rapidly exploding as a tool for cross-platform mobile development. And somewhat related, Fuchsia has released a few months ago on like Nest Hub devices or something at Google. And I think Fuchsia on mobile is around the corner. So those are some big trends I'm seeing in the developer tool space. Really interesting ones to get into there. Okay, we can bring this together. What's your favorite or most powerful question to ask or be asked? Well, anyone who has either been a toddler or knows a toddler or maybe has a toddler can tell you the, the most powerful question on the planet is only one word, why? I love it. And finally, to wrap us all up, Jordan, is there a quote or mantra that you live by or a quote that's really resonating with you right now? There's so many great ones to live by. It's hard to pick just one. And, and you think you'd have to think about that. You'd have to create a, a very thoughtful process to pick one. But the, the one that comes to mind most is knowledge builds up like compound interest. 
the more that you can learn every day, the more that you can increase your rate of learning, the more effective you'll be in the work that you do. A powerful way to close. Jordan Adler, Conflict Optimization. Really excited for your workshop at the Summit, Jordan. And I'm going to do everything I can to sit in on that because I think it's going to be so impactful for me as somebody who struggles with conflict. So thank you for your, your time today. Really appreciate it, Jordan. Thanks for having me on, Patrick. Thanks for having me on, Jerry. Looking forward to it as well and, and hope to see you all out there at the workshop. Be there or be square or your preferred shape. Here's a quick recap of our takeaways and a little bit more information on how to join Jordan's upcoming conflict optimization workshop at the 2022 virtual ELC Summit. Conflict optimization is about creating the right environment for healthy, constructive conflict before conflict happens. A few high-risk areas within engineering to watch out for that may be predisposed to conflict. Things like technical decisions in the software design process, global policies around language or repo strategies, and people decisions like how projects are assigned, how performance is evaluated, how expectations are set, and if people are held accountable. So... Now that you've identified where conflict's going to happen, what's the process to optimize conflict once it's happened? Get everyone in the same room, reestablish that you're all working towards the same goal, acknowledge that you might have different concerns within that goal, and may even have different opinions on how to meet those goals, and then declare that we need to work together to make that happen. To switch people from a place of entrenched positions to interests, you have to dig into the underlying needs behind someone's position. So things like, Help me to understand what is it exactly that has you want to take X or Y position. To further understand the underlying emotional needs in a conflict, you can also apply nonviolent communication. Nonviolent communications framework contains observation, feeling, need, and request. So what this looks like is, I see that you're feeling X. Can you share why you might be feeling that? What is it that you're missing that is causing you to feel that? How can I help meet that need? Or how can I give you whatever is missing? The key here is to develop a vocabulary around emotions. And there you have it, a few practical tools to help you immediately optimize conflict. However, one of my favorite quotes is, it's not the knowing that's difficult, but the doing. If you wanna go deeper into conflict optimization and gain experience practicing the strategies and frameworks that Jordan shared, make sure that you join us for the 2022 virtual ELC summit that's happening on April 20th through the 22nd. Jordan will be there leading a workshop going deeper into conflict optimization. Imagine what your life would be like if everyone on your team applied these strategies with their conflicts. I think that would be amazing, right? If that sounds awesome to you, head to sfelc.com forward slash summit 2022 to register. Workshop registration will be opening soon. Signing up now means that you will be the first to know when the workshop opens. Again, you can register at sfelc.com forward slash summit 2022. See you next time on the Engineering Leadership Podcast.